If you leave, he said, keep who you are. Don't let the world and its desires ruin you. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Sharif Shanahan, guest editor of the magazine. This week, I'm speaking with Cynthia Cruz, who joins us from Berlin, Germany. Cynthia is the author of seven poetry collections. Her most recent, Hotel Oblivion, won the National Book Critics Circle Award. She has also published a manifesto for the working class and a book of essays on silence. Born on a U.S. Air Force base in Germany and raised in Northern California, she is currently pursuing a PhD at the European Graduate School, where her research focuses on Hegel and madness. Today, we'll hear from her forthcoming manuscript, Back to the Woods, which will be out this September. The poems in the book circulate around Freud's concept of the death drive. Cynthia writes, in its simplest iteration, the death drive is an attempt to begin again through the act of self-annihilation. Cynthia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here, and it's so nice to see you. So nice to see you, and so great to have you. I want to start by asking you about process, which is a question I typically shy away from in interviews. Our processes are idiosyncratic, and I find that when folks ask about them, what we offer up rarely helps them because so personal and so individual. You are incredibly prolific. Your first book of poems, Ruin, came out in 2006, and after the publication of your second collection, The Glimmering Room, six years later in 2012, you've published a book of poems every two years. I think it's consistently been every two years. And so I'd really love to understand a little bit more about how your poems come into being, what the process of finding and growing your poems is. Thank you for pointing that out. I wasn't aware that they were coming out every two years. <laughs> I, was actually, I was actually talking to um, my husband last night. I was talking about Lucy Brockboido, who I um, was really lucky to work under. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was talking about the two different kind of poets. It seems like they're poets who publish irregularly, right? And I think every she published just a few books. Every eight years, she would say mm-hmm. it was like eight years. And until everybody waits, right? Mm-hmm. And I am one of those people who I wish, I feel like I kind of wish I were one of those people because there's mm-hmm. something about that, you know, everyone's kind of waiting and waiting and waiting. But I am I think of the artist Dieter Rott or Mike Keeley, and they were, it's just like this um, collecting of stuff. And this is the kind of poet I am. Mm-hmm. And so as I've been writing these books, I've been in school. So I got an MFA in art criticism, and then I got a master's in German language and literature, and I'm currently working on this dissertation. And so it feels like I'm not working on the poetry, but I'm always sort of collecting. Hmm. It is sort of the way that I work. I think that the work that comes from our everyday life. And that, that's like all of it, including research and, and the news and everything mm-hmm. makes the best raw material. And I also have been talking a lot and thinking a lot about Clarissa Spector's process when she was working on The Hour of the Star and her last stories. And she would literally write on scraps of paper what was happening. So she'd write, you know, I went downstairs to the, um, not the bodega, but the bodega mm-hmm. and got a pack cigarettes and Coca-Cola and I talked to the guy on the street and she would literally just write it on scraps of paper and then she put that 
into the story. So you can, um, there's an archive online and you can see her notes and then you can go to the hour of the star and her two last stories and see them as they show up. And so it's not, um, it's not William Burroughs. It's not stream of consciousness. It's rather just collecting the everyday material mm -hmm. and then of course, revising it, making something of it. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship between your critical work and your creative work and I want to put an asterisk on that question because I resist that binary that we so often see upheld within academic spaces and even in um, just casual conversation among artists and uh, scholars. You know, the presupposition of that binary, of course, is that the creative work is not critical and that the critical work is not creative inherently, that there's some kind of mutual exclusivity of those two things. And so as someone who is, you know, kind of, decidedly and in a pronounced way, doing both and publishing different types of work that is both critical and creative in poetry, in cultural criticism. How do you think about these questions? Yeah, I've been thinking about how my work has always, um, I've always believed that the lyric I is the way to, to show the world that I live in. Mm. You know, and, and one of the things I always feel like, and I always tell my students, if I just write or we all just write about our actual life as a poem, right? Not just, but then uh, in 20 and 50 and 200 years, that actually is um, writing about the world, right? Mm -hmm. so if you're writing as an American. I am an American, even though I don't live in the U.S. right now. I carry all of that, right? So the U.S. is highly militarized, you know, just all of it, all the class stuff, mm -hmm. all that racism, everything is in the writing, even if I'm not explicitly mm -hmm. stating it. But I've been thinking lately that perhaps writing from the eye doesn't do what I want it to do. And I'm not exactly sure. So I'm glad you asked the question. It's something I've been thinking about because um, I don't want to write didactic work and I don't want to write work that is very explicit. Um, that I think is for the prose. I, I, it's very separate, hmm. but it's something I'm thinking a lot about. It's a great question. When, when you say that you don't want to write work that's very explicit and that's for the prose, what aspect would be explicit? Is that, are you thinking about narrative or exposition or how, how do you mean that, Cynthia? I've always felt that for me, poetry, for me, poetry is a form for trying to put language to what can actually not be articulated. It's it's impossible. Um, it's Lacan's real sort of, or, you know, it's just the impossible or trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my philosophy or um, essays or any of that stuff is actually providing the context and it's explaining it in a different way. It's articulating and they're very different. What, what does it mean that they're so different? And is that okay? Is my, you know, writing these other poems that are not explicit, is that a cop out? I mean, I don't know. Hmm. You know, it's something I'm hmm. thinking a lot about. You mentioned uh, trauma just a moment ago, and I wanted to, to ask about tre treating traumatic subjects uh, as material for lyric poems. And I, I want to say, too, that I think you know this, but I am a Cynthia Cruz stan. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> love your work. I absolutely Thank love your you. work. Your poems astonish me, Cynthia, you know, and particularly, it really is in a way, your treatment of very difficult material that has intense gravitas, but is never melodramatic. It is never self-indulgent. It achieves something tonally, 
you know, which is probably the element of the work where poems about or of or a consequence of trauma might begin to move in this direction that folks, that critics often critique lyric poetry in and around trauma for. And so how do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) How do you find that? How do you find that balance? And I think also, you know, part of what I am interested in hearing you, you know, share is, you know, about the ethics almost of writing about trauma and what draws you to your subjects. I think that actually listening to you talk, I've I've returned back to my, um, you know, that poetry is for this thing, because um, one of the things I feel very strongly is that anyone living in the United States uh, you could all say about capitalism, anyone living under capitalism is suffering mm-hmm. greatly, greatly. Mm-hmm. Different different levels and different ways for sure, but everyone, I'm, I'm even getting chills thinking about it. I mean, we're all, we're, we all have trauma. Mm-hmm. Recently, I was at a panel talking about um, Italy, the, the book Melancholy of Class was translated into Italian. So I was at this really great festival in a Mm. factory. All the workers had been fired and they took over the factory. So there were like 200 factory workers there. It was just amazing. I felt like I don't want to talk. You guys talk, but I was talking. And I felt what I feel often, which is that the stuff I was talking about in that book is not special. I mean, there's so many people just like me. And that's how I feel about the poems too, Mm. that um, so many people suffer violence or mm-hmm. poverty or, you know, their parents or what well, I just, right. So many. So in a way it feels like if I can articulate that in a way that people can sense, right. Then that's doing something. Mm-hmm. So I, I am back on this. I, I think, I think that they are two different ways and I I'm back on thinking that's what I'm going to do mm-hmm. is these things. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking when you were talking about trauma, I was thinking of my father or my mother. I mean, what they've gone through their lives and the way that I could, there's no way to articulate that in a poem in a um, straightforward manner. It would be reductive, right? So mm-hmm. if I talked about, you know, um, poverty or the medical establishment in the U.S., it becomes a kind of lesson. And that's not the mm-hmm. way that it is rendered in their body and their psyche, right? That's not what it is. It's different. And so I keep thinking it's like, um, well, I'm not going to say what I think because it's goofy, oh, but. Oh, please do. <laughs> no, I was going to say it's like a dance, which mm-hmm. sounds so goofy, but it's like um, the poems are a series of gestures, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot too about, you know, especially when I'm teaching that, you know, so if I were, like I said, if I were to tell you the story about my mother and how, um, so she was um, diagnosed with kidney failure. Mm. Kidney failure in the U.S., they do this terrible thing where they put a tube in you. I won't, nobody wants to hear the story, but it, it's quite um, horrible and traumatic and violent. And every once in a while, you have to get a new tube put into your body where you have to be put under. It's very expensive. And for a period of time, she stayed with my brother who lives on the other coast. And so she saw a different doctor and that doctor said, actually, there's nothing wrong with your kidneys at all. There's nothing wrong with my mother's kidneys. Mm-hmm. So they, she was, um, you know, given this surgery, uh, presumably for the money, you know, each time this <sighs> costs so much money. And um, my mother, she, how do you, how do you digest that information? My mother's, I think, 80 now. So it's been a lifetime of these kinds of things that happen and you can't talk to anyone about it. 
actually sounds insane, you know, but it's a series of these kinds of things. And so it makes sense to me to try to put that into a different language. So the reader will read a poem and just be devastated Mm -hmm. and not know why, Mm -hmm. because that's what that feeling is, Mm. you know, because if I um, reduce it to the story, I mean, the story is also horrifying, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't affect the reader as as strongly, I think. And and that story, my mother's story, I don't think is uncommon in the United States. I think that's actually, and, and she had insurance. Yeah. Uh, So I just got the chills, and I, wow, thank you for sharing that, and it demonstrates the point you're making so, so powerfully. One of the commitments of your work, uh, to me, is the interrogation of beginnings and endings, and it's something that we see across your body of work. Your latest book, Back to the Woods, is centered on the concept of the death drive, uh, which you say in its simplest iteration is an attempt to begin again through the act of self-annihilation through ending. An earlier collection is called How the End Begins. Can you talk about how you think about these ideas of beginning and ending psychologically, existentially, poetically, uh, both in the new book and across your work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, it's really sort of funny. So I'm studying Hegel now, which um, the way that it works with my life is that I'm always sort of blindly grasping at things and doing things. And then it's only later that I realize, oh, that's what I was doing, right? <laughs> and um, so that's what I was doing. And I didn't know that. Mm. One thing is um, this weird thing when I was anorexic, which I was on and off for many years. Mm-hmm. I had this really, because it's delusional belief. It wasn't like I knew it wasn't a real belief. It was a magical belief, magical thinking mm-hmm. that if I could just get whatever anorexia is, right? If I could just get small, it wasn't quite that, right? But if I could just get there, whatever there is, then I would be magically brought back to my, like before it began, like the beginning of. It's very weird, and I could never figure that out. And now it makes complete sense because there is this um, this desire to be able to go back and do it all over again. Of course, you don't get to do that. That's not the way that works. But right with both Lacan and Hegel, it is this this always this constant. You know, the ending is the beginning, and the beginning is the ending. So of course, I love that. Right, it's almost like every moment is a new, is a death and a rebirth. Right, I mean, isn't that great? Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But then also, um, so with the melancholy of class, right? So it was a um, bit of a memoir and also analysis of melancholia in the lives of different working class artists and musicians. And what I noticed as I was writing that book was many of those artists were very self-destructive, right? There was a lot of alcohol and drugs, for example. There's also um, eating disorders. So it's an unconscious desire, right? The self-destruction. But it's the hope is that if you could just, it's like the anorexia, if you could just get to the bottom of it, then you can start again, right? Mm. Um, And so I wrote another book, which right now doesn't have a home, called Becoming Nothing on Negative Freedom, on the concept of negative freedom and this idea of the drive, but also negative freedom. They're similar. And I was trying to explain it because I think that people, because it's very complicated. Um, Obviously, you know, if one um, is suffering greatly, it's not going to be useful to drink to excess or eat to excess or watch TV all day. And yet that is 
what we do, mm-hmm. right? And so this is, this explains why to me, right? This kind of mm-hmm. idea. I know with um, How the End Begins, I really felt with that collection that the, I was marking the end of something and the beginning of something else, which I was, but it turns out that's mm-hmm. sort of what I'm always doing, mm-hmm. do you know? So I thought now might be a good time to hear a poem from the collection, specifically Dark Register, the poem that appears in the May issue of the magazine. Sure. I will read it gladly. Dark Register. If you leave, he said, keep who you are. Don't let the world and its desires ruin you. But after the dream comes the habit and no way to fix it. What is gone cannot be put back. Damage from the inside. What I've become is warmed over with that now ancient dream. What I was is vanished. I came back home, but I came back gone. There are two integral influences in forming your new collection. Can you talk about the late American poet Frank Stanford and the musician Mark Linkus and how these references came to be important to you as a person and a poet? So when I started this collection, uh, Back to the Woods, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've I've changed the title a few times, so I wasn't sure for a second because it's such a simple title. So while I was working on this collection of essays, The Melancholy of Class, I was also finishing up this book of poems. And um, in a way, then they speak to each other because Frank Stanford is in this book, as is Mark Linkus. So I had started thinking about the melancholia of class, the concept of uh, melancholia, Freud's concept of melancholia, um, which is this idea that as opposed to grief, so if I lose something, I can um, spend time grieving it and then I can move through it. This is what happens. With melancholia, one doesn't know what the object is that one has lost. And I had the sense that with the working class, that perhaps this could explain some of the melancholia. So it's different than depression. Depression generally happens, not clinical depression, but depression happens, right? If I lose something, if I don't get a job, my dog dies or something, then I go through a period of depression and I move through it. But melancholia, you don't, you don't recover from. And so I was writing these poems while I was... Um, thinking about this idea. And I was also thinking about my own journey as a poet. And it felt at the time that I had abandoned my own background Hmm. because I I looked at my first book, Ruin, and I looked at the second book, Glimmering Room, and they felt very wild. They felt very, um, it felt like I had taken a lot of risks that I wasn't anymore taking. And I wanted to return to the first book, but in a different way. And so that's why it's called Back to the Woods, although it I didn't grow up near woods necessarily. But Frank Stanford and Mark Linkus were sort of my, um, I was going to say ghosts. They were my ghosts when I wrote this book. I'm full of beings who died at sea.
You mentioned that Back to the Woods is the name of the manuscript now, um, the, current, the current title of the manuscript. Would you feel comfortable sharing what some of the other possibilities were, some of the working titles? I would. I don't know if I... Um, no, I think the only other one I had was If the Dead Ride By, hmm. Hmm. which sounded right, but then it, you could see how it didn't make any sense. I thought, wait make any sense mm. so yeah so that's why we, okay. we didn't do that okay. one yeah um but but back to the woods just seemed so seemed very too simple but maybe you know maybe not uh not not for me for whatever that's worth i like the title <laughs> and it's it's arresting in its apparent simplicity I like to ask our guests about the role that teaching and mentorship plays or has played in their lives and in their work as poets I know that you've taught a number of workshops over the years at institutions and privately. Were, were there mentors along the way that were particularly important to you? And you know, what has teaching done for and, and meant to you as a practitioner? So it's interesting. As a, a poet, I, I can say I was not mentored. It's a very strange thing. I was having a conversation with another um, poet who admitted they had not been mentored. And it's um, very, it's a very strange thing. I don't really understand that. Um, so I had a very hard time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I was always thinking I should just give it up. Um, I didn't get much encouragement. But then I was in Lucy Brockwright's workshop. I wasn't at Columbia. I was in the Sarah Lawrence program. Um, and I was told by one of the writers at Sarah Lawrence who didn't understand my work that perhaps... Lucy might. And so I would go, she had these private workshops in her home and those saved me. And I'm so grateful for them. And, Mm. you know, she's a, she was an incredible, obviously writer and person and teacher, but I think more than anything, um, that I wouldn't necessarily say, I mean, I wasn't mentored by her, but just her existence, like her being there and her seeing my work and um, being very, she was very enthusiastic about it that that saved me. Um, and it's interesting because I would say that now I'm in this philosophy program and I feel mentored. And I think about that a lot and what that means. At this point, I'm working on the dissertation. So the person I work with, we meet every two weeks. We've met every week at times, which is extraordinarily generous. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's incredible, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so every week I, or every two weeks I read, whatever uh, philosophical text. And then I write notes because that's the way that I learn best. And then I send my notes to this person who then reads the notes, shockingly. Um, and then um, we meet for an hour and they um, sort of free associate and um, tell me what they think about. Um, so it's very strange because I, I wanted this person to tell me what I got wrong and what I need to do. And I don't get that. And I finally become accustomed to that but that's not going to happen. What I get is um, I'm treated like a, like a mind, you mm. know, somebody who's got ideas. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a little, it's a little hard to get used mm. to, but it's, it's really been helpful in my own teaching. I've been thinking about what is this thing about, there's like um, absolute acceptance and absolute listening and understanding the person you're working with. Um, but then also it's not a free for all, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not like hanging out with my students. We're not smoking pot. Mm-hmm. It's not that mm-hmm. it's, it's also like, you know, this person says, you know, read these, um, these two very difficult philosophical texts and I'll meet you in a week. Mm-hmm. It's not, mm-hmm. that's not what that is. And yet the, um, there's a generosity and this is what I hope to 
give also because of my own experience as a student and also as a, as a workshop uh, leader, mm-hmm. that's what we're called, I'm not sure. Um, it's, 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 it's quite brutal. Mm-hmm. It's been quite brutal. And so um, I really think um, I, I don't do workshop the way people do workshops. Um, we look at poems, and I say this at the very beginning, we look at a poem and we talk about what is on the page. Mm-hmm. And, and some people, you know, oh, you're talking about craft. We're talking about what's on the page. You don't need to know anything. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can look at this poem um, and say, okay, it looks like it's, you know, a page and a quarter. It's yep. broken up, yep. um, you know, whatever. And and that's what we do. And so we don't get into a lot of the other kind of stuff that happens in a workshop. And then the other thing is that the whole idea of rules makes absolutely no sense mm-hmm. because um, each person comes from a different culture, a different class background, a different race background, a different country, a different, um, their experience of the world is different, right? I mean, I could go on forever. Yes. And so the way that they are in the world is not the way I'm in the world. It's not the way anyone else is. And so the way that that's going to sort of make a mark in their artwork is totally not going to be like anyone else's if it's good. Mm-hmm. So my job is like a midwife, right? Is to help bring that work into the world, right? And if it really, if I've really done a good job, it ought to be totally unlike anyone else's which is risky, right? Because um, there's a lot of conformism, right? And there's a lot of worrying about these rules and stuff. But if mm-hmm. the work is really good, it will be like, unlike anyone else's because we're all totally different, right? So, you know, no sonnet, yes sonnet, you know, yeah. um, small poem. But it, it depends totally on the person and it totally depends also on each poem, mm-hmm. right? So that's the way I teach. That's beautiful to me, Cynthia. And it it's... It, it's in a way the, the opposite of a very common mode of teaching, which, as you say, might move us in the direction of conforming in a workshop context. You know, the poem that is most celebrated in a workshop context is the one that is most agreeable mm-hmm. to the people in the room and not necessarily the one that is most itself. And so I, I, love, I love what you say. Um, you mentioned Lucy, Lucy Brockbroido and the connection that you had with her, the time she gave you. Can you... Tell us a little bit more about what those meetings were like and what they did for you, like what they did to and for you. Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's, it's also good for me to think about it. I mean, so I, you know, just context, you know, um, my mother, I just found out recently my mother didn't finish high school. She grew up in a factory town, Volkling in Germany, and um, my father is Mexican-American. His parents were peasants in Mexico and they came over. Um, and they met in Germany. Um, and then I was born in Wiesbaden, Germany at a U.S. military base. But we were raised, I have a brother and sister, and we were raised in Northern California. Um, my father, he was unable to finish grammar school. So I'm coming from um, a family. I mean, we had books in the house and, and my, you know, but they were not able to a weird thing to say right I mean the the idea of going to college was not not even on the horizon it wasn't like uh, you're not going to college mm-hmm. because xyz it wasn't even an option so but I ended up anyway going to college late so what that means is that um, when I decided to become a poet which is a totally insane thing you know from my background <laughs> it's so crazy everyone told me not to do it um, mm-hmm. that I really didn't know anything about poetry, right? And and that's a great place to start. But everybody knew everything. I mean, 
when I look back, I mean, they didn't, right? But this was the attitude. Everyone knew everything and, and I knew nothing. And so, you know, workshops were really traumatic. You know, I would get my poems back, marked up, you know, all the teachers, most of the teachers, two out of four of the teachers said, we have no idea what you're talking about. And, and the students, mm. all my classmates agreed. And it was traumatic. And, and that's why it's so, you know, mm. it's really, it's um, a workshop is, you know, it's just about the poem, but it's, it's also, you know, it, how does that not affect you? Mm-hmm. Because what I was writing about, it turns out is what they couldn't understand. So I went to these workshops and, um, you know, they were with people I mean, there are people who were editors at The New Yorker. You know, there were people, I remember, you know, these two girls who worked at The New Yorker, they showed up in, um, it's weird to say this, it's so weird, but like heels. And I remember thinking they must, they must catch a cab here. Like I was just in this like weird place, right? And so I was like, oh my gosh, you know, and, and um, there were people who had studied with her before. And so really to just, that's why it's so important. I was in that space. You know, I was in that space and I think for, um, I went for many years and I think for a period of time, it was like, I didn't talk at all. I never made comments, you know, I just, but being in that space was important because I felt like, okay. And, and also she understood my work, you know, as she would, she would put hearts by, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff and, um, yeah. So that meant a lot, but I still felt, I remember feeling like I was weird. Mm -hmm. I remember, um, one evening and I just remember like the rooms were dark I mean they weren't but that's just the I mean remember I I just remember them in this way it was like I was this I felt like I was this wild animal and I remember she called one of my poems feral and I didn't know what the word meant and I I didn't know but I knew it was bad and I looked it up and I thought wait what does that mean and for many years it was like a like a wound because I did feel feral. Mm. And then, you know, all of this mm. stuff in retrospect, like now I go back and I feel like, no, that's exactly great, right? That's exactly yes. what we want is to... Um, so it's not about cultivating that strangeness, right? We already all have that strangeness, you know. E- you know, whoever from wherever plays, it's about trying not to diminish that strangeness, right? Yeah. If that makes any sense, yeah, right? Totally. And so in a way, when I look back at, you know, who I was at that time or the way that the difficulties I've had in academia, which is to say my inability to get a full-time teaching job mm. for whatever reason and having to adjunct for 20 years mm. was terrible, but it protected me in a way. It kept me, my writing has not, I mean, I don't think it's been, negatively affected, if that makes any sense. It did, I didn't all of a sudden clean up the work, I don't think, right? And there are certain things that may have happened if things had happened the way that I had wanted them. But this feralness, right, that I felt in the workshop and I was ashamed of turns out to be the very thing that needs to be protected, right? And I guess this goes back to the teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I abhor the notion of you working as an adjunct for 20 years when Mm. you wanted something else. And that opens up so many questions about the opportunities that are available to us as poets and the culture and the kind of ecosystems and economies that we're moving through. But I I hope that you'll permit me to say that I'm glad in a way, (laughs) not that you face challenge in that way, but that the work was protected, you know? one, one of my professors at the NYU program uh, told me in office hours one week after I had had a pr- particularly difficult workshop not to listen to the workshop participants. 
<laughs> you know, he said it respectfully. He wasn't demeaning or diminishing anyone. He just said, look, you know, you're all at the beginning of your lifelong apprenticeship to this art. Listen to Sharon Olds. Listen to Yusuf Komunyaka. If mm-hmm, they tell you mm-hmm. something, consider it, you know. But if a peer insists, you know, you don't necessarily need to take that on. And it really helped me get through that program. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to ask who the two were that did not understand what you were doing, but we could <laughs> yeah, we could we do that back I, channel. I think you know. We'll do. Yes, yeah. I I have an idea. Kind of guess. Yes. I'll send you an email. <laughs> 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 but it all is funny because it's it's that thing where in the long run I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm-hmm. At the time, I remember thinking I wish I were in the um, Columbia program because there would be all these people writing like me. But it wouldn't have been like that either. It would have been something different, you know? It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today, Cynthia. And I thought to close out, we might hear the poem Born There from the forthcoming collection. Of course. And thank you so much for inviting me and all of your wonderful, uh, thoughtful and considered questions. So um, this is Born There and the title comes from a very short poem by Frank Stanford. Born there, I remember the ventilators of childhood. It's broken machineries, it's duct taped engines and shut windows. Racing with my brother after rattlesnakes and rabbits down the dusty path. Food stamps, lost maps, slips of paper and plans with names and numbers of what I can never remember. Waking on the cold tile floors of hotel bathrooms, Once I was a girl wading in a cream dress into the lake. This is not a parable or a fairy tale. If you had asked me then what I wanted, I would have said nothing. A big thanks to Cynthia Cruz. Cynthia is the author of seven collections of poems and two collections of critical work. She lives in Berlin, Germany. You can read Dark Register by Cynthia in the May 2023 issue of Poetry, in print and online. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Masaryk, and irreversible entanglements. Okay, that's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.